Welcome to Great Ideas. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, violence in America from white supremacist groups. It wasn't that long ago that the threat of terrorist attack was a top concern of American voters and a top priority for American government. When people think of violent extremists, they tend to think groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or other international terrorist organizations. But in October 2020, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security published its annual threat assessment, identifying racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, particularly white supremacist extremists, as the most persistent and lethal threat here in America. And mind you, this is an assessment done during the presidency of Donald Trump, famously focused on overseas threats. In fact, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a highly respected Washington think tank, analyzed 893 terrorist plots and attacks in the US over the last quarter century and found that domestic far-right terrorism has significantly outpaced terrorism from far-left networks or anything from those notorious overseas groups. And also that the threat of right-wing extremists has been growing as those groups perpetrated two-thirds of the attacks and plots in the US in 2019 and over 90% in the first six months of 2020. To address this growing issue, the Center for American Progress and the McCain Institute for International Leadership have developed a policy blueprint that outlines a comprehensive national strategy for tackling the complexity of white supremacist violence. It's a bipartisan plan based on consensus policies that unite our political parties. Our guest today, Simon Clark, is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's one of the authors of that blueprint, and he's here to tell us all about it. Simon, welcome. Matt, thank you. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And it's, as you say in your report, a, a very complicated, nuanced, and misunderstood topic. So just at the top, can we define what we're talking about here? What do we mean by white supremacist violence? Is it the same thing as terrorism? And are white supremacist groups the same thing as far-right political groups? The first thing to say is that it's complicated, just as you explained in the introduction. White supremacist groups and anti-government groups as well have committed and plan to commit further acts of violence for political purposes in the US. Some of those acts of violence are terrorism, pure and simple, and they fall into the legal definition, also the common sense definition. But not all violence is terrorism, and that's why we focused on violence more broadly. And the important thing to remember is this is politically motivated. Right? There's a political purpose behind this. It may look like just thuggishness and nastiness and racism, and it is all of that, but there is a reason behind it. And that's what makes it so dangerous and so socially important to deal with this issue and deal with it now. That makes sense. And it, it, it's a, is it the way it's portrayed in the media, sort of a hazy constellation of of groups loosely affiliated in, in some cases, you know, lone people or people organized over social media. Is it that confusing of a landscape when we talk about the actors as part of this equation? So I think you need to look at this in two connected ways. One is the ideas, the ideologies that are driving the violence. And the second is the groups and how they are organized. So you're quite right. There are lots of different groups, some reasonably large and well-structured, 
the proud boys, the three percenters, oath keepers, and so on. Some very small, some just a band of cousins or buddies or friends. And it, and it is true, every once in a while, you'll get somebody who pretty much self-radicalizes and, and decides to commit an act of completely horrific violence. And of course, you know, there's history here. Tim McVeigh and his friends did exactly that in the mid-90s. That's interesting. I mean, it's a good example, right, where, where you're talking about this isn't some vast shadowy conspiracy. Sometimes it, it could be a group of self-radicalized people who literally are kind of cousins. Absolutely, often cousins. And by the way, that's very, very uh, similar to the jihadist groups, which are also largely family-based and cousins and, and family networks. But the, the real point is, and I keep coming back to the ideas and the politics, because I think this is really important to, to get this right. The ideologies are consistent. And so the groups may be hazy and, and some very well organized and many not, but the ideas spread and the ideas are what drive the violence. And so you really need to trace back to what are these people trying to achieve and what is in their mind as they pick up a gun or a bomb or plan to kidnap and murder a governor or plan to blow up a building. What are these people trying to achieve? What, what is the ideology that unites them in this, in this nexus of white supremacist, racially motivated, or at least racially tinged violent extremism? And white supremacist is the start. And it's a deep-seated, of course, very old idea. White supremacy has been around for a long time as a, as a concept. But the basic idea is, in many ways, both very simple and totally baffling. It's that white people, let's put an asterisk on just the definition of white, because, of course, that has changed in American history. You know, for the longest time, Italians and Irish were not. But white people used to rule this country, should rule this country, are losing the country and need to do whatever it takes to take it back. That's, that's the basic, at the brown level, the basic concept. And if you take this idea that something that was your right is being taken away from you and you therefore have the duty and the opening to do whatever it takes to get it, back, you will get catastrophic violence as a result of that idea spreading. And that idea spreading on mainstream channels at prime time by very popular talk show hosts, by politicians who endorse the great replacement theories and other ideas of that kind, will and has led to death. I want to ask a deceptively simple question. I noted at the top of the show some of the statistics compiled by numerous experts, you among them, of the threat posed here. But you also just alluded to the fact that the threat doesn't have to take the form necessarily of an overt act of violence to undergird some of the activity that we're seeing here that can lead to violence later. It can involve Tucker Carlson giving what, what should have been a dog whistle was just an outright whistle of replacement theory on his widely viewed show. It can extend to internet conspiracy theorizing, or it can extend to actual planning for, plotting for, and committing of acts of violence. So can you give our listeners something of a sense 
however one defines it, of the scale of the threat that we're dealing with today? How big and pervasive is it? The problem is we don't know. And one of the recommendations we make in the report is to get good information, to get good data. And the quality of the data is very, very poor in the US. It's a real problem. If you contrast this, for example, with Germany, you know, the German government does a really good job tracking far-right groups. There's a re historical reason why the Germans tend to be a bit sensitive about these things. But it's, it's very impressive. The Bureau for the Defense of the Constitution, wonderful long German name, keeps an eye on white supremacist and, and other neo-Nazi and, and far-right groups, makes sure that when they, which happens, penetrate either police or the military, that they are rooted out. The, the Germans have not been perfect and they've let things slip, but they have good numbers. They have good data and we don't. And I was really pleased to see the Attorney General this morning going to Congress and asking for $85 million to do better tracking. How did we get here? In the report, you reference some of the history involved. And obviously there are factors such as we used to be a slave-owning country. And so there is there is that, I mean, maybe it's too reductive to say, you know, there is that massive factor in our history. But you also point to some more proximate factors in the last 10 to 20 years that have driven the current situation, the emergence or re-emergence of this kind of overt threat to civil society. So what is some of that recent history? What are those drivers? Let me just make one historical point, then let's talk about it. it is a bit of a cliche and it's wrong in terrorism studies to say that, well, most terrorist groups fail and terrorism doesn't really change the political landscape and so on. And of course that's not true. You know, most terrorist groups fail. Some succeed, some succeed extraordinarily well. And one of the great terrorist success stories is the Ku Klux Klan, right? Which was able to disenfranchise a whole segment of the population for a hundred years. You know, if you, you want, you want the, an example of political violence being used for uh, change, KKK is there. So we have a history of successful terrorism in the US. It goes way back to reconstruction and then back again to the 1920s. But let's talk about the more recent side. We did have a growth of white supremacist groups in the early to mid-1990s, tied to, as Kathleen Bellew has shown, Vietnam vets who were returning, Kuwait war vets who were returning, the spread of some really nasty ideas, and it, it climaxes in Oklahoma City. The FBI then goes in, Attorney General Garland, who was then the prosecutor, does a great job and, and pretty much reduces it. It starts building up again in the mid-2010s. The fact that we got the first Black president you have to assume had something to do with this, but it really starts getting toxic around the language of immigration and the language of demographic change. And you start getting this panic, this real existential panic of the, of the coming majority becoming a minority, right? Of, of this country no longer being a majority white Christian Protestant country. And that, that has to be stopped in every possible way. And then you start getting really radical ideas based around the concept that the nation, that the thing you are supposed to be loyal to is not the United States. The nation is the white nation. And again, the parallels to jihadism, to, to Islamist rhetoric are really interesting, right? You are not loyal to Iraq, you're loyal to the Ummah. Uh, and, and there's a certain amount of 
fairly self-conscious imitation going both ways. Uh, so much so that you get one extreme far-right group in the US that actually calls itself the base, translation of Al-Qaeda. So there's a certain amount of imitation, there's a lot of existential panic, and then we have the 2016 campaign. And after the 2016 campaign, you have a sense that there are forces in government that are your friends, your supporters, your, in, your at least partial allies, and that therefore you have some permission. And that's when it gets really nasty. It's very hard for me to erase from my mind the image on election night 2016 of Richard Spencer and his supporters, the far right leader of, I guess he wanted to create a white ethno state of some yeah. kind. I, I, you're the expert, but I, the upon the announcement of the election of Donald Trump, the group breaking out into the Nazi salute, uh -huh. which Spencer then explained away by saying, oh, well, they just got exuberant. Of course, begging the question, if the way you express your exuberance is by breaking out in Nazi salutes, do you maybe see a problem here? But that does raise something that I think we have to talk about here. One dynamic that unites, and I think is a thread that runs through your report and the object of this show is that you explicitly try to be bipartisan. You try to go for consensus. You don't want this issue to be viewed through a partisan lens. I feel the same way about all of the ideas that we present on this show. And yet it's hard to avoid the fact that white supremacist violence and these groups that are fomenting this kind of violence are implicated in the violent January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, whose aim was to overthrow the US government and US democracy and their support for Donald Trump. To add to that, last week, Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate, as part of his response to President Biden's address to Congress said, quoting here, hear me clearly, America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. How concerned are you about people you want to engage with in the Republican Party dismissing this whole topic and dismissing the blueprint that you've worked so hard to craft here as simply another iteration of partisan politics or liberal woke overreach? How do you make sure that that dismissal doesn't happen? So let's go back six months before January 6th, Lansing, Michigan. So the state capital gets overrun by people with guns, with all sorts of anti-government and white supremacist ideas, trying to shut down the attempts to manage COVID properly. Three of those people then decide to kidnap and murder the governor. And they are welcomed by the leader of the state senate. Mike Shockey, who has consistently supported these groups, has been on platforms with them. And this is not some minor backbencher. This isn't some bumper. This is the head of the Republican Party in, in the state. So look, trying to be bipartisan doesn't mean being blind. 
And when we see people using or exploiting violence for political purposes, we call it out. And that's why focusing on the ideology is so important. There are plenty of serious Republicans who care about this country and want to be engaged in dealing with the threats to it. Unfortunately, there are others who see political value in cozying up to those who will preach violence and those who will preach the ideas that can lead to violence. That needs to be exposed. To some degree, do you find yourself having to state the obvious out loud almost at the cost of one's sanity? It's, it's a little bit of a Will Ferrell, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills moment. In some ways, reading your report, where on the one hand, as you say, it's a little bit surprising. It's a little bit counterintuitive to hear Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, say, you know what the number one threat to America is? You know what the number one violent threat is? It's not ISIS. It's not Al Qaeda. It is these domestic groups, these domestic terrorist violent extremist groups. I'm glomming different categories together here, but this is his words, you know, so to some degree, there is some surprise embedded in your report and your, and in your blueprint for action. On the other hand, does it, does it ever grab you as somewhat, Hey guys, we just had an insurrection. There was an armed attempted takeover of the seat of us government how much more evidence do we need that this is a big problem here? The history of my engagement with this, and I'll make this very personal, but I think it's relevant. The first piece I wrote was in March, early March, 2019. The argument I made was, this is a serious problem. We need to take it seriously. To be fair, there was at least one paragraph in the uh, White House terrorism strategy that had been published in 2018 that referred to white supremacist violence. I'm being fair because it was a friend of mine who wrote it and managed to, he'd actually put a couple of pages in there. It ended up being one paragraph, but to, he, he managed to hold that one paragraph in there despite certain advisors to the president who wanted to take it out. Uh, so I'm not going to say that the US government, even in the Trump administration, was totally ignoring the problem. And to his enormous credit, Director Ray and the team around him not only took it seriously, but put FBI resources behind it uh, all the way through the Trump administration uh, against real pushback. So the FBI deserves a great deal of credit as an organization. Please. But again, from my personal experience, when I first published this in the beginning of March 2019, it was not seen as a national security problem by and large, and certainly not a high priority one. By an awful coincidence, the week after I published was the week of the Christchurch attack. And that really struck people and made a lot of the more thoughtful politicians understand that this was not a one-off case. This it wasn't some guy just going to El Paso and shooting up a Walmart, that this was a global problem that needed to be taken very, very seriously indeed. We saw the conversation start to change, but then again, we saw the radicalization in increase as well. Throughout 2019, throughout 2020, COVID didn't help. And up to the insurrection, 
up to an attempt to destroy the democratic institutions of this country. I'd love to think that that was the peak and we're all done now, but I don't believe it. And before we get to actually outlining what's in your blueprint, just to be clear, this is something that was developed truly on a bipartisan and consensus basis. You say in your report that you have intentionally sidestepped the more contentious approaches that one could take here. This was developed in concert with Democrats, with Republicans, conservatives, liberals, and what you are prescribing here is an approach that hopefully can and should unite us, but at least starts from a place of we're all working on this together. This is not a lowest common denominator approach, right? This isn't a sort of mush where we get to the few things everybody can agree on and we hope that that'll sort of kind of work. We're pretty confident that these are the right steps. But it's worth explaining a bit of background here because there's a tension that we needed to work through between two right sides, both of them correct in, in their instincts and their inclinations, both of them bringing something really important to the debate, and yet groups that were really struggling to come up with a constructive approach. And those were, on the one hand, people from the counterterrorism world who saw an emerging, growing threat, want to take it very seriously, or wanted to you know, pretty much throw the book at it, do everything that could be done. And there are a lot of very progressive politicians who, whose natural instinct, perfectly reasonably, was, hey, we did all these things to the Islamists. Why aren't we doing any of these things to the white supremacists? And then the pushback that largely came from Muslim communities in the US, now, as well as civil rights and civil liberties groups and other communities that have been really threatened by white supremacist violence, whose immediate response was, no, hold on, let's not go there. We know what happens when we go all hard counterterrorism. It's never good for us. And you think you're protecting us, but if you start using those techniques, we're the ones who are gonna be harmed in the end. And that was really the core of the debate that we needed to work through. And we're really comfortable that we've come out of that productive tension with a set of recommendations that not only both sides are happy with, but that are actually better than anything we would have come up with without working through those issues carefully. So normally on this show, we spend about the first half talking about the problem, making sure we understand it at a basic level and all the implications for America. And then the second half, we get to the great idea. The issue here is that there's not really one great idea because as you point out in the report, there's not a silver bullet here. There's not, there's not one quick and easy fix. You present a more nuanced set of recommendations that work together cohesively to try and address the problem. Let's see if we can go through them and understand the broader landscape of what you're proposing here, which is a, a complex plan for a complex topic. You have five broad categories that you outline in the blueprint. The first one is to better leverage executive branch actions and authorities. So tell us what that's all about. It's a mix. 
It's a mix of rhetoric, practice, and bureaucratic detail. So let's take all three. The rhetoric is really important. Right? The president is, after all, the only president, vice president, the only nationally elected officials in the US. So what they say matters. And to go from a president who, at best, was somewhat indulgent uh, of white supremacist ideas to one who calls out white supremacist violence in his inaugural as a threat to the Republic that will be vanquished. It's a huge change and it matters. And the president has been consistent in his first hundred days on this. His team have been consistent, the attorney general, the secretary of the DHS, and they have been very serious about calling out the problem, focus, focusing attention on it, and making it clear that this is a fundamental threat to American values and to our democracy. And, and rhetoric matters, right? Because it sets an agenda. Then there's a, a ton of work that needs to be done within the federal government. You know, the starting point is we cannot tolerate active white supremacists inside the federal government itself. There's no way that you can build confidence in the communities that are under threat if they rightly perceive that there are people who threaten them in the organizations that are supposed to protect them. I would call out in particular the work that the Department of Defense under Secretary Austin has done. That's deeply impressive. And he has taken this very, very seriously. He's training his people well. Uh, it's funny, I was talking last night to uh, a recruiter uh, in one of the branches. And this they are really focused on making sure that they do not allow white supremacists in and that they keep an eye on their troops to make sure that nobody gets radicalized and that they help them if they are going down a dangerous path. Every part of the federal government needs to do the same kind of work. And there's a lot they can learn from the seriousness with which DOD has taken. And then there's a lot of bureaucratic detail. It's, it's making sure that we have the priorities set properly, that we put the money and the people in the right issues. If we're saying, the FBI says, the DHS says, that white supremacist violence is the most serious threat, then we cannot have a situation in which there's a 16 to one ratio in one state that we studied of agents looking at foreign terrorist groups versus domestic, right? Doesn't work that way. You've got to get the balance right and you've got to reallocate resources. That certainly sounds as a starting point. I mean, it resonates for me, it's we talk on this show and and on other shows that I do all the time about the fact that it's it's often misunderstood that in the federal government, so much of the action is happening in the agencies. And so the role of the president is to set the tone, is to set a set of priorities. But then I, I love hearing that there's action in the bureaucracy. I actually believe in the, in the professionals, the executives inside the federal government who are experts in their domains implementing these kinds of policies. Let's turn to the second area, the second category that you put into the report. And you alluded to this somewhat a moment ago with Germany as, as an example, but you say that it's really critical to improve data collection, research, and reporting. So anything specific here that you would want to focus on within that broad category? And what are the benefits of doing that? Well, the tell was that you opened the show by quoting CSIS's excellent work. And that we quoted, we opened our report by quoting ADL's excellent work. What do CSIS and ADL have in common? They are not branches of the US government. 
right? And they do not have access to all of the data uh, that the US government ought to be able to collect. We need, we need the numbers. I mean, you can't do anything if you can't measure it properly. And we need to understand what the hate crime statistics are, something that's been a consistent problem, right? From when the original hate crime bills were, were passed. We need to understand a rough size of the violent extremist groups. We need to understand the crime rates. We need to understand why one district attorney has more charges for domestic terrorism offenses than every other district attorney in the country by a fairly significant margin. And you know what's going on here. We need good quality information if we're going to make any decent decisions, both at the congressional level and, and at the federal executive level. And of course, these have to come from state and local governments because most of the, the ground truth isn't at the federal level. And so you need to do a lot of work. You can't order the local police department to give you the information. You need to help them. Your third category is then I'd say the, the active next step of your second category, and it's to protect communities and prosecute crimes. So you get intelligence, you get actionable intelligence, but then you've got to do something with it. So what does that look like according to your blueprint? You, I'm glad you, you, you kept that order because it really is important. Our, our job here is to protect communities and particularly the communities that are most under threat by this kind of violence, right? Minority groups, any kind of marginalized group. And they are threatened. And, and as we talked about at the beginning, at the high end, they're threatened by terrorism, pure and simple. Right? Tree of Life Synagogue is a, ma- is a terrorist massacre. But they can also be threatened by hate crimes, intimidation, racist abuse. There, there's a ladder. And there's both a ladder of escalation, of radicalization. You know, people who start doing unpleasant things online who end up bombing a church. But there's also a, a ladder of intimidation of, of threatened communities. And our job is to protect them. And we protect them by prosecuting crimes. We also protect them by helping people de-radicalize, disengage from these groups. And we help them by getting the Department of Education to make sure that people are able to spot radical and, and dangerous ideas and to understand them better, to have a a better sense of their country's own history. We help them by getting a, the health and human services people involved with, people, with you know, people who have mental health problems and are getting pulled in. I'm not saying that violent criminals are have mental health problems as a rule, but there are people who go from uh, a position of vulnerability to a position of radicalization. We need to be able to pull people out of that. And again, Look, there's a federal role that's important. FBI obviously has a really important role. The joint terrorism task forces are vital and have done great work and have prevented a, a number of potential massacres over the last few years. But much of this is at the state and at the local level, at the community level, at the neighborhood, at the church, at the school, at the synagogue. You know, we need to be involved in people's communities and help those who have got lost and are in danger of becoming themselves a danger to the communities around There was a movement in policing called the broken windows theory about 30, 40 years ago that sort of took hold. So I remember it, I was living in New York City at the time and uh, it was very much in vogue there. Now it has come into question in subsequent decades how valid a theory it really was, but the thought was that there is a continuum 
of criminal behavior that extends from low-lying offenses and runs all the way up the scale to more violent crimes. And that by addressing some of the low-lying offenses, you would diminish some of the more overt and violent crimes. Is there embedded in this idea of protecting communities and, and getting more involved before things become truly violent and radicalized, is there something of the same notion, not to tie the, the, the two together, but is there an underlying connection point there between the kinds of low-level intimidation, harassment, graffiti, that, that kind of activity, and what you see further on down the continuum of extremist violence? So the simple answer to the question is yes. And my friends on the gun violence prevention team at the Center for American Progress worked on a bill, which we recommend should be passed, that says if you've been convicted of a misdemeanor hate crime, you should not be allowed to buy a weapon. Right? It, it, the person who scrolls a swastika on, on the synagogue shouldn't then be allowed to go buy a, an AR-15 because... There is that pattern. But the, the policing school that I find more appealing is, you, did you follow Patrick Skinner in South Carolina? No. Local beat cop down there. Uh, it's a great story. There's a wonderful New Yorker profile of him a few years ago. Uh, he was a CIA operations officer in some pretty hairy parts of the world and then decided the best thing he could do to serve his community was just to go back and be a beat cop. And he writes a great deal about how the real job of the policeman is to be a neighbor a good neighbor, and to pay attention, and to listen, and to serve the community, and to demilitarize, to de-escalate, to be there to support people. And I think there's a great deal to this. And you're right, of course, that small crimes can grow into bigger crimes and that people can, can move up a ladder. But where we can be really helpful is to find those people who have lost a connection to their community, right? who are looking for a home and will do anything for a new community, including espousing the craziest, most dangerous, violent, vicious ideas, and to lead them back as much as we can. So that's a great segue to the fourth category in your report, which is to counter the recruiting and infiltration of these kinds of extremist groups and ideologies into the military veteran and law enforcement communities. You alluded to this somewhat earlier in the efforts of the Secretary of Defense. How widespread an issue is that kind of infiltration into those communities? And what steps should we be taking to stop it? So back to our earlier discussion, we don't know. We don't have good numbers right now. And the Secretary of Defense is, is starting a project to get better numbers. I, I'm more concerned about the policing side and, and the veteran side. I mean, you've seen the numbers about how many veterans and, and police officers were there on January 6th. You saw the president of the Fraternal Order of Police in Chicago uh, say after January 6th that he saw no problem with the insurrection. Uh, you saw the sheriff in the community in Michigan where the three terrorists who had planned to kidnap and murder the governor, say that he thought they were just planning a citizen's arrest and he didn't see why they had been taken into custody. There's a fundamental difference between the 
Islamist jihadi threat that we faced 20 years ago and the violent white supremacists we face today, that we don't have a bunch of police officers and vets and military people who find that ideology appealing. We do, unfortunately, have a number who have been radicalized over the last few years. Uh, and all you have to do is to go to a Blue Lives Matter message board to see that, who have far too much sympathy with the ideologies that are pushing white supremacist violence right now. The fifth category of recommendation in your blueprint is to employ financial and technological tools and authorities. Tell us a little bit more about what that tool set looks like, particularly in the online world where there's been a lot of focus, especially around QAnon over the last year and the growth of some truly wacky ideologies, but also ideologies that cross over to a significant extent with these violent extremist groups. So this, this is the category that's probably the closest to what did we learn 20, in the last 20 years in the fight against Islamist violence that we can apply to the fight against white supremacist violence. Using financial tools to understand money flows has been one of the great American success stories. The US did a lot wrong after 9-11, but one thing it did right was that it cut off the funding to Al-Qaeda. And US Treasury under both George W. Bush and then Barack Obama were superb in understanding how the money went into the different groups and how to shut it down. We can use many, not all, because of course most of this is domestic, but we can use many of those tools today and we should. But the real issue is, is the online side. So you're, you're right to focus the attention there. And in this case, the best thing we can do is to follow and not lead and to learn from others. In particular, we should be looking very closely at what the New Zealand government did, Jacinda Ardern did, after the Christchurch massacre, because her response was pitch perfect. So she did three things. The first was, she refused to allow the murderer to be glorified. You will notice that the New Zealand government never mentions the name of the murderer. And that's deliberate. And I don't either. And I think we should all follow that. Don't allow these people, these monsters to become martyrs. The second, so she realized the New Zealand government wasn't going to be able to change the online world on its own. It's a country of five million people after all. But she knew that she could build a coalition. And so she signed up first the French, then the Jordanians, then almost every democracy in the world, with the one notable exception of the United States, because the Trump administration, of course, wouldn't join, to call, the Christchurch call, they, they named it, to ensure that online platforms did not become homes for spreading violent extremist content at the most basic level, the absolutely most basic level that they would no, never again allow the live streaming of a mass murder as they had done in Christchurch. And the Christchurch cult has been extraordinarily effective. It's a really smart piece of work because it brings together civil society, governments, and the online platforms, each to do their part to reduce the risk that the online world becomes a home for radicalization. Like all these things, it's not perfect, but it's an awful lot better than what, was, what came before it. And the single 
most effective measure that the United States in the Biden administration could take to deal with white supremacist violence online is to join the Christchurch call. Are there difficulties in doing that that are particular to the United States? Is this whole issue particularly difficult for the United States given the First Amendment, given our constitution? So the First Amendment is always an issue that needs to be thought of carefully. Of course, different countries have different rules about freedom of speech. The call was written very carefully to deal with First Amendment concerns. The primary focus is on the platforms themselves, private companies, let's emphasize this, private companies who have themselves a First Amendment right to choose who they will and who they won't host. And it's for the platforms to decide that they will not carry violent extremist content. It is for the platforms to decide that they will sign up to the Global Internet Forum for Combating Terrorism and share information between the different companies so that they can take down violent extremists and violent extremists across all platforms at the same time. Governments can do their part to help, but the call is written very carefully so that the governments are not telling the platforms what to do and that they have to sign up to core democratic values. There's a reason no autocracy signed up to the Christchurch call and none will. And finally, to anyone who feels like, oh, maybe this issue, it happens far away or it happens in, in other places, not in my town. What would you say is everyone's stake in this? Why does this issue matter to everyone in America? Everyone's stake in it is that we have had a system since we adopted the constitution that Americans choose their leaders and choose their governments. And white supremacist violent extremists want to change that system so that they, not we, the people, decide who rules this country and for whom. I've been talking with Simon Clark of the Center for American Progress about his blueprint and the blueprint of the McCain Institute for International Leadership for combating white supremacist violence in the United States. Simon, thank you so much for joining us on thank Great Ideas. Very much indeed. Real pleasure. pleasure.